0: Today, we'll learn why Isaiah's prophecies of hope were such a big deal. And when we talk about the gospel as meaning good news, what exactly does that mean? We'll also discuss the idea of the two Isaiahs. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Lesson 38, Beside Me There Is No Savior. We'll be covering the chapters Isaiah 40-49. through 49. But first, I have a question from Lee, and Lee doesn't give a town, so we'll, uh, we'll just call him Lee. Uh, he, he's talking about the special episode we had with Mike Madsen where he discussed the tabernacle in the wilderness a couple of weeks ago. Lee asks, your guest Mike Madsen a couple of times made reference to the hymn Ye Elders of Israel, specifically the line in that hymn about going to the mountains of Ephraim. I understand the hymn refers to our restoration view of Ephraim as the tribe of the restoration. And in that case, it seems to make reference to the mountains of Ephraim as gathering into the church. And I get that leaving Babylon is also a symbol of gathering out of exile in the world. But in the Old Testament, where the symbolism takes root, when Israelites were being brought out of Babylon, the mountains of Ephraim were in apostasy. Maybe you could shed some light on this or ask Brother Matson, or maybe I just need to get over the mixed metaphors. Great question, Lee. So if I understand the question, it is, why would we talk about returning from Babylon in the, in the hymn, uh, Ye Elders of Israel? And why would Brother Mattson make reference to that when, were, when the Jews, when they came out of Babylon, were bidding Babylon farewell and were going to the mountains of Ephraim? Uh, that would have been saying we're returning to a place that's in apostasy. Now, I don't. In my opinion, I don't think it's mixed metaphors you need to get over, but a mixed timeline. So, the mountains of Ephraim, before David conquered Jerusalem, the mountains of Ephraim were. Uh, or let me put it this way: they weren't always in apostasy. The mountains of Ephraim were at times the repository of the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, and the the prophetic seat, if you will. So, um, for the writer of this hymn, for the author of this hymn, to say we're returning to the mountains of Ephraim, that may have been him putting himself in the place of a Jew returning from exile, not to Ephraim as it was at that time, but to Ephraim as it had been in the past, a symbol of something before the corruption in the days of David, uh, when the gospel was simple, even before the temple was built. So great question. I hope that answers it. And uh, we look forward to hearing all of your questions. Email the show at gt at Well, today we have a wonderful lesson, and it begins in chapter 40. And those of you who know Handel's Messiah will, and not just the parts that the choir sings, but uh, the soloist parts, you'll recognize tons of scriptures, tons of verses are taking, or were taken and used in the Messiah and set to music. So you might remember some of these in the first, the first verse is, of course, the beginning of the Messiah, which is, comfort ye my people. And uh, and as it goes on, so chapter forty, we're, we're going to take these chapters one by one and talk about what they mean. And and uh, I'm I'm really glad that this makes sense to do it this way. I'm really glad that the the lesson chapters go from forty to forty nine because the last two chapters uh, we'll we'll discuss those very last. And I've got something some special insights for those chapters as well. Chapter forty, comfort ye my people. Now I'm going to. Um, restate something I've said in the past which is I think one of the most helpful things you can do as you're studying Isaiah is to first read the chapters of Isaiah in another translation aside from the King James translation and the reason is here's here's a perfect example right here right in the first verse of chapter 40 comfort ye my people this is so often interpreted as uh, God saying to Jerusalem comfort yourselves comfort ye Comma, my people. But the actual, and there are two ways that that sentence can be interpreted, right? Comfort ye, saying to some unseen people, comfort, comfort my people, you people that we're not looking at right now, or comfort yourselves, comma, my people. Well, it turns out it's the first one. So, uh, when the way that most Latter Day Saints read these verses, comfort yourselves, comfort ye, comma, my people, is not true. It, this is a call. This is an instruction to those who are reading the scriptures, to go out and comfort Israel. In other words, spread the word. Here are some. Here is a secret that I'm telling you because you're reading the scriptures. You are listening to the prophet Isaiah. Here's a secret that you can take to the rest of Israel to make them glad. And uh, in fact, we get there are uh, a few places in the scriptures where we get the phrase "good tidings" from. And then gospel comes from that. And we'll talk a little bit about the etymology of that word in just one second. So uh, if you remember in the, um, in the account in Luke 2, where the shepherds are in the, watching over their flocks, and all of a sudden an angel appears, and he said, Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So when he says good tidings, that was almost like a code word. It was something, it was It was such an obvious quote from the scriptures where, uh, it, for example, if I said to you uh, the, the words formless and void, you would know that I was talking about the first chapter of Genesis where in the beginning God said, let there be light. There's another really common quote from the scriptures you would know exactly where it was from so these shepherds hearing these words behold i bring you good tidings of great joy they would have recognized this as a quotation now the the phrase does appear other places in the old testament but they would have definitely recognized this as a quotation from isaiah and specifically uh isaiah chapter 40 and then again later on in chapter 52 or 3 and um but right here is the first place where it really talks about the good tidings being the tidings of redemption, right? And so um, the in verse 9, so the, the, the first verse, if you're following along in your scriptures, the first verse you're going to want to go to is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. And uh, in the King James Version, here's, here's where the phrase uh, good tidings comes from. O Zion that bringest good tidings, get thee up. Into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up; be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So the the phrase good tidings appears twice, and the the entire nation is shouting the good tidings, which is the same exact meaning as good news. And the good news is, behold your God. So. We're going to go into a moment what the, what the context of this entire chapter is. But the point is, the good news is we're going to be, the entire nation, the entire earth is going to be shouting, behold your God. So when the angel used this phrase to those shepherds in, when, on the night of Jesus' birth, when he said good tidings, he was also saying, or the, the shepherds would have heard in their minds repeated the end of that verse, which was, behold your God. So he was saying your god has been born and that was very intentional on the part of the writers of the gospels and in fact the word so the the word good tidings was then translated into old english it was first translated into greek and then latin and the if you uh served a mission speaking any latin language you will recognize evangelical as a as a word that comes from a cognate so uh, in Portuguese, the language that I spoke on my mission, the word for gospel, is evangelio, which is the first two letters, EU in Greek means good, and then angelion or angelion is a messenger or a message. Well, the translators of the the Bible into English wanted to preserve this uh, this meaning of a word, and so they actually coined a new word and they created it the same way. They took the word God, meaning good, and the word spell, meaning messenger, and they created gospel. And that just means good message or good messenger. So it's this, it's preserving this idea of the good, the good news, the good tidings from Isaiah. But it, 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 this concept has its origins, it has its roots in the book of Isaiah, and specifically in Isaiah chapter 40. So when we say what is the gospel I believe in the gospel fundamentally what that means is God will come and be among us he cares about us so much and as uh, as Nephi learned when he asked the angel what is the meaning of this fruit my father saw the first thing that Nephi got as an answer was do you know the con- the condescension of God and Nephi said I don't I don't know the meaning of all things but I know that God loves his people so The condescension of God means that God was willing to come down from heaven and make himself as low as the people that he loved. And that is the good news. Behold your God. Now, later on, and I'll I'll take a little bit of fire, I'll steal a little fire from next week's lesson, but the the phrase good tidings is repeated, and it's in the verse that you've all heard, how blessed are the feet of them that bring the gospel of peace, that, that publish good tidings. And say unto Israel, thy God reigneth. So those are the two pieces of good news. Behold your God and your God reigneth or your God or God is in charge. So not only is God going to come and be among his people, but he's also going to be in charge. Now, it's easy to understand when you get where this good tidings comes from why the Jews would have been expecting a powerful Messiah. And in fact, that theme is woven throughout the entire book of Isaiah. There's going to be this Davidic king one day who appears and redeems his people. And specifically in these chapters that we'll discuss today, that that theme is the most prevalent theme. And so it's obvious why the Jews were expecting the kind of Messiah that they were and why they would not have expected to find Jesus having a humble birth. All right, what's the, what's the context, first of all, of where we're finding ourselves in the book of Isaiah? So the, the first, Isaiah is often divided, and uh, I mentioned in the opening that we would discuss the two Isaiahs, the idea of uh, what's called Proto-Isaiah and Deutero-Isaiah, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, the book of Isaiah is often divided into two parts, chapters 1 through 38 or 39, and then 40 until 66, the end. And 39 is kind of this middle chapter where Isaiah promises that, um, first of all, King Hezekiah. Now let's get back into a little bit of the history of Isaiah. Hezekiah was that king that collaborated with Isaiah and being a righteous king. And if you remember, the armies of the Assyrians came and camped out in front of the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah was scared, but he was a righteous king. So he went to the prophet and said, what, what should we do? And Isaiah responded, don't worry about it. The, God will protect us. And God did. Well, later on, Hezekiah made the terrible choice. And and at this time, Babylon was not a threatening empire. He invited diplomats from Babylon. And uh, and Isaiah warned him had warned him about this kind of behavior before. But he invited these diplomats in and showed them everything. So in, in chapter 39, if you go back one chapter from what this lesson covers, you can see what happened. And Isaiah had warned him, like, why are you going to Egypt? Why are you going? And we talked a little bit about that last week, why do you care about all these other countries that God has worked so hard to get you out of? Now you're trying to get yourself back into a relationship with them and depend on them when God could fight your battles for you. Instead, you're trying to find all of these earthly allies that can help you, but they're all wicked. And this is what we can presume what Hezekiah was trying to do. He was trying to show another empire that was a budding empire at that time. It would be another hundred and some odd years before uh, they could conquer the Assyrians, nevertheless, Babylon did exist even in Isaiah's time and so Hezekiah was courting this sort of um, arrangement where they could have a powerful friend in the East and maybe if if Judah found itself in trouble, they could call upon the Babylonians to help him out and Isaiah rebukes hezekiah and says he doesn't specifically say because of what you've done but he does say the days will come and your your descendants will be eunuchs in the court of the babylonians and all these treasures you've shown them they're going to carry them all away and our entire nation will be wiped out by them and this happens during isaiah's lifetime so this is the this is a very concrete prophecy of the exile into babylon and uh you can if you can take a little bit of uh, context out of, out of that chapter and realize that before that, the northern kingdom had already been carried away. And to, to expand a little bit about something that um, we've already talked about, how the northern kingdom was the mountains of Ephraim were in apostasy. What happened when the northern kingdom was carried away captive was that the Assyrians replaced the Israelites that they carried away with people from all over the empire. So it was this hodgepodge of captured people that had been subjugated to the Assyrian Empire. And what did the Jews do that were left in the kingdom of Judah? There were still some Jews, there were were still some Israelites left in the northern kingdom, but they were vastly reduced in number. They were in the minority. And then they they still had the neighboring kingdom of Judah. Well, they tried to convert them to the worship of Yahweh. And a lot of these former slaves or relocated slaves, they listened and they became converted. And yet they didn't have the history. They didn't, you can imagine if an entire nation were converted to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today, but no members who had, no people who had been members of the church for very long moved in among them to teach them. And so they would you can imagine the kind of traditions that might spring up and this is kind of what happened to the northern kingdom so they had a few generations of commingling but they didn't establish themselves as israelites 100 percent they and they weren't firm in the faith you might say and so when the southern kingdom was carried away captive the northern kingdom they tried their best and after 50 or 100 years when the Jews began coming back and rebuilding the temple, they found that the northern kingdom had descended into this apostasy as they saw it. And it was not just any apostasy. It wasn't just like the idolatry that had surrounded them before. It was idolatry mixed with the worship of Yahweh. And so they found it so much more offensive. And that's what—that's who the Samaritans are. If you remember, the capital of the northern kingdom was in Samaria. And so in Jesus's time, that's why they were such enemies of the Samaritans is because they had taken the the legitimate and orthodox worship of Yahweh and perverted it a little bit. And uh, you can see how Jesus felt about them by the fact that he went among them, that he used the Samaritan, the good Samaritan as an example of someone who could treat others as a neighbor. Jesus saw them with great mercy. And obviously the, the temple was not among them, but uh, Jesus grew up in a place that that had been peopled by Samaritans for centuries. So that's a little bit of the history there. So here we are in this time when Isaiah kind of switches his focus from the judgment that will come upon the people of Israel. So he's been talking about how they're wicked from chapters one through 39. Israel, you are so wicked. You are not listening at all to the prophets. You're not listening to the words of your king, your god, Yahweh, and therefore you will be punished. And then in chapter 39 he says, "The day will come when you're carried away." So this is where the idea of deutero Isaiah comes from. From from chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking as if this exile has already occurred. And he's saying, "Fear not, Israel. Things are terrible for you right now. Babylon is a terrible master they treat you awfully etc but one day you will be restored and in fact in, in chapter 40 it says every valley shall be exalted every mountain and hill made low in other words god will change the earth itself if he has to his paths will be made straight it won't be hard for you to walk back home to israel it won't be hard, or to judah or to jerusalem it won't be beyond you. You won't have to go through the mountains. You will have this straight path across the wilderness. And that was metaphorical, obviously, because at that time, God did not change the, or we don't have any record that God changed the physical road. But what what did happen historically is that the eventually, after Israel had been in captivity long enough, the Babylonians carried the nation of Judah away. They took, they first took the rulers and this had happened before the time of lehi in the book of mormon they took the rulers away and they said you know judah you've got to start paying proper tribute and you've got to have the proper respect for for babylon because we can't keep coming back here and reconquering you guys every few years it's it's not working for us and uh i'm I'm understating (laughs) then how upset they were obviously but judah kept rebelling and they wanted to have their freedom and eventually babylon came in and took everyone and they only left a a bare minimum of people behind and so from that point on the nation of judah and benjamin they they existed mostly primarily they existed in within the nation of babylon and so we have a ton of scriptures and we're going to talk about uh in coming weeks we're going to talk about the writings of the prophets that wrote from that exile But Isaiah lived 150 years before this happened, before Judah lived among the Babylonians. So the, but, and now from here to the end of the book, we have all these writings as if he's there, right there present. So one idea is, uh, obviously Isaiah had visions of the future and he knew what was coming and God had told him that. But it's important to understand Uh when you hear from the prophet today, he doesn't often say, uh, here's what's ha- here's what's gonna come 150 years from now. There's gonna be a president named uh, Joseph Hiram Abelard and he's going to declare war on Mexico and he doesn't give that kind of specific information with dates and names and the, pre- the prophet just doesn't see that as, as his job. The job of the prophet is to speak to the people of today. So it seems odd to people who look at this from the perspective of Isaiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel, that Isaiah would all of a sudden start talking about a time 150 years in the future. And furthermore, Isaiah names who the emperor of Persia is going to be that conquers the Babylonians and sets them free. And Isaiah, in fact, calls Cyrus, the, the emperor Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, he calls him the Messiah, the Messiah or the anointed of God. Uh, Cyrus has been chosen and anointed to free Israel. That's that's what he calls him. We'll get to that. So this idea, the idea arose that there must have been two different people who wrote in the book of Isaiah. One, the Isaiah who wrote during the time of Hezekiah, and that ends in chapter 39. And then with chapter 40, we have this Deutero-Isaiah, meaning the second Isaiah, who lived 150 years later, included his words in the book of Isaiah, and then sealed them up with the same name. There are problems. And then, so the theory was, was it Isaiah that wrote this, but God showed him everything that would happen 150 years later. And so he he wrote it down. And there is some reference in the book of Isaiah that this is exactly what he was doing and I'll give you those references. And then there is some also evidence that um, that he didn't do that, that some followers of Isaiah, probably his prophetic disciples and their descendants, who that Isaiah would have sealed up his words and then they would have carried on his traditions and passed those writings on to each other. And uh, at the end of the lesson, we'll talk about kind of what I think. But um, either way, the the prophecies that that happen from here on out have to do with coming back from a sort a form of exile so chapter 40 you'll remember a lot of the verses and and the the message in chapter 40 is that god is incomparable if you read the gospel doctrine lesson manual from the church this is this is the whole point of their lesson that they've prepared which is who can you compare God to? No one. You can't. You can't draw a comparison between God and any other God. That's why the title of this lesson is "Beside Me There Is No Savior." In other words, if you were to if you were to stack up, uh, if you were to compare some other God next to me, you couldn't call that God a Savior. You wouldn't be able to compare him at all. Now, quite often, these particular chapters of Isaiah are are used as evidence against. The doctrine of, of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, which is that there, are no, there is no God beside me, for example. Uh, and th- it's a little bit of a stretch to do that because he, what, what Isaiah is saying, God says, there is no God beside me, is not that uh, I will never help anyone else to be like me. What he's saying is, there is no God that will save you, there's no one who will save you but me and you can't compare anyone else to me. So when we read in the Do- in the Doctrine and Covenants that Abraham has received his exaltation and sits upon his throne, then we don't take that as saying, as we as Latter-day Saints don't take that as saying, oh, now we should pray to Abraham because he's been exalted. Nobody thinks that. And that's because there is no Savior besides God. But we don't see a conflict in our doctrine. We don't see a conflict to say Abraham has entered into an exaltation and sits upon a throne, and there is no God besides the besides Yahweh. However, um, that basis has been used to attack our faith, and so it, I, I thought it'd be helpful for for my listeners to be aware of that. So that's the point of chapter forty, which is God is he cares about you, right? He he. Do you think that God, even though he's uh, so powerful. Do you think he doesn't know about you? If he created everything, you think he doesn't see you and know about your problems and care about the things you care about? That's why he's going to do this great work, which is to restore you to your homes, to restore you to your to your land that you lost. Now, um, several times in the next few chapters, the idea and this this happened in Job as well. The idea of a courtroom appears and. Um, the, the words are almost all Isaiah speaking in the place of God. So quite often you will hear, uh, thus saith the Lord, which means uh, another way of saying that is Yahweh says. Now, as I've mentioned before, the King James Version doesn't have any quotation marks. So this is the equivalent of quotation marks. Yahweh says is like saying, or thus saith the Lord is like saying Yahweh says, quote, and then whatever follows is, it comes directly from God. Almost all of the chapters in, the, in our lesson, or I should say the, the vast majority, are direct quotes from what God is saying. And he's saying, take me to court if you want. Put me next to the gods that you worship. Let's examine exactly how they're made. So in, uh, in chapter 41, God is responding, if you will, to the accusation that the Babylonian gods are more powerful than he is. So this is a conclusion that the the exiled Israelites have come to because, obviously, if God were protecting them, then the Babylonians could never have conquered them. And God is reminding, chapter 41, Yahweh is reminding the Israelites, I told you this was coming for so long. And he makes this point again and again in these chapters. He says, if I told you something that was going to happen in advance and then it happened, that's not evidence that i'm not powerful it's evidence that i am powerful and i will allow the babylonians to come in and conquer you if i need to so the point of your captivity was not that i'm powerless but it's the fact that you needed to be purified and i tried everything i could short of letting you be exiled and conquered and carried away to purify you but none of it was working and so finally this was my last resort i had to allow you to be carried away nevertheless Now, and this is the miracle, right? This is the miracle of all of Jewish history. They should have perished as a people, as did every other conquered people. You and I cannot sit here and name any other people that were conquered by the Assyrians or by the Babylonians or by the Persians and say, oh, these people are still around. None of them are. They all have ceased to exist as a people. And yet the Israelites still exist. So God is saying to them, I will preserve you. I will bring your children and uh, and this this is one of the prophecies that comes later on in the lesson. I will bring your children from all over the world. You'll say, well, no, I'm barren. I have no children. And yet you do. You've got all these descendants. In other words, he'll preserve their identity. And that that is the mercy that God will show to them because he's already promised, as he promised to Abraham and as he promised to David, I'm going to bless the entire world through your lineage. I have to have your people around so that I can do that. And I'm going to bring this Davidic king, this Messiah, that you don't know. You don't know quite what he looks like yet. But I'm going to bring him from that line, and he's going to rule in a state of peace. And some of these chapters are talking about what that looks like, what what the Messiah will uh, will, what his reign will look like. The first time that that prophecy appears in Isaiah, or the the most, the first time it notably appears is when you, uh, this, this prophecy that comes out in the book of Matthew, which is a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, chapter 7 of Isaiah. So when Isaiah talks about uh, the, my holy city and that my servant in chapters 40 through 49, he's referring back to chapter 7 and saying, this, this person whom I've named God with us, this my servant, will reign among you and there will and this will be in a blessed a very blessed time. Now the Jews can be forgiven for thinking that this time was proximate rather than thousands of years in the future because Isaiah didn't say exactly when it would come to pass. So that's chapter 41. Now in 42 uh, so we've been talking a little bit now about 42 which is when God starts to expose this idea of my servant and uh, if you want to, I haven't mentioned the, the six antecedents of Isaiah in this lesson yet, but if you want to have a perfect chapter that you can use to teach yourself the six antecedents of Isaiah, chapter 42 is it. Now, for those of you who haven't listened to the special episode on the six antecedents of Isaiah, an antecedent is a a, a noun that later on you'll use a pronoun to refer to. So if if I say, Um, John is going to the store. He will buy some milk. He is the pronoun, and then John is the antecedent. Well, in Isaiah, we don't often know. Sometimes pronouns are used, and we have no idea what the antecedent is. And the point is, sometimes you can put more than one antecedent in for a lot of the pronouns in Isaiah. And you can therefore, by doing that, you can get a bunch of different meanings. And some of those meanings have to do with you and your life. Some of them have to do with Israel. Some of them have to do with Christ. So I encourage you to listen to that and uh, chapter 42 is a perfect way to teach yourself how to do that because it has so many different interpretations it's a wonderful chapter and again if you read it in another translation uh, the good news translation god's word translation the new international version these are all uh, freely available online you can read each of these chapters in about a minute and understand them very clearly you'll get a little bit of a different take for each translation that you read because they all have a doctrine that informs their translation Um, so if you read something in there that doesn't feel right, then read it in a different translation and see, oh, you know, this, this is what this person believed. And therefore they translated this passage this way. Nevertheless, at least you'll get the point of where the chapter is going, what Isaiah was trying to say. Then you can go back and read the King James translation and say, oh, this is difficult language, but it's not difficult because God made it that way or Isaiah made it that way. It's just because 400 years have passed since this was put into English. So... The King James Version, is powerful as it is for us, should not be our only resource. So that's chapter 42. And uh, again, God is is getting across the idea that Israel has been exiled because of their iniquity and not because he was powerless. And this is an important idea because in chapter 43, then he goes on to talk about how he's going to lead them out of trouble and he loves them and he, and he needs them to trust him. And... Uh, He's, and he reminds them now in in verses, we're now in chapter 43 of Isaiah. In verse 16 and 17, he talks about that wonderful thing I did to you. And he doesn't even name it as the Exodus or the nation as, as Egypt. But he says, do you remember how uh, an, uh, an army was led in and perished in the waters? Well, the time will come when you're not even going to talk about that thing I did before. In verse 19, he talks about the new thing I will do. In other words, I'm going to save you again, and it's going to be so spectacular. It's going to be so miraculous. You won't need to talk about that thing I did before where I split an entire sea in two and then collapsed it upon an an army that was coming after you, a pursuing army behind you and brought the water over their heads. You're not even going to mention that thing because I'm going to to do something so amazing in the future. I'm, I'm going to do this new thing. That will be so wonderful. It will be all you can talk about. So that's chapter 43. God is getting across this idea that something new is coming, and I'm going to do something so amazing among you. And the Jews that would have received this chapter would have understood that as coming back from exile. Now, uh, again, we need the six antecedents to understand this because, yes, they did come back from exile, but it also has a fulfillment in the latter-day gathering of Israel. It has a fulfillment in when God redeems us from our personal sins. It has a, fulfill, a fulfillment in what happened to Jesus Christ in his life. It has a fulfillment in what we see in the temple. Uh, chapter 44, he, Isaiah continues to bear testimony. God will, God is going to save you. And then this is, this is a wonderful chapter if you want to talk about idolatry. God describes in detail the process of making an idol you know a man um, and it's just wonderful it's it's really it's it's what we would call today satire and he describes the 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 day the day or the daily work of someone who a word a wood carver who takes half the wood and he uses it to cook his breakfast and then he takes the other half and and he carves with his own artistry his own skill an idol out of this wood And so he eats the breakfast and then he bows down to the rest of the wood as if it had the power to save him. And then God says, you might as well not even eat the meal. You might as well take the wood that you burned to make the meal and eat the ashes for all the good it's going to do you to worship this idol. It's a wonderful image and it's it's very powerful satire. It's as good as anything somebody could write to, you know, any political satire you could read today. But it also has a wonderful application in your own life, which is you create things in your life. And then you give them power. You give them more power than you need to. It takes a little bit of insight to understand what those things are, because they're different for everyone. We each have to make that decision. That's chapter 43. And again, uh, or I'm sorry, that's chapter 44. So God is saying, even though you've done this, even though you believe in these idols, I will still save you. I'm, and then and then we see the first mention of Cyrus. And this this is where we start to get Scholars coming in and saying, there are two Isaiahs, right? There, Isaiah could not have been writing prophetically and then come up with the name and speaking to the exiled. Why would he write to the exiled Jews as if he were there present among them? He wasn't. Why wouldn't God just call a prophet to write to them of their own time? And, uh, the, we don't have an exact, exact answer. We don't know the the perfect answer to that question. We could we could make some up. We could guess, but uh, it's a very good question. And he names Cyrus by name. He says, "I'm going to command Cyrus to free you. I'm going to give Cyrus the power to conquer Babylon and set you free." And in verse uh, verse one of chapter 45 is where Cyrus is first called the Messiah. And So this is an interesting idea because, and I addressed the idea on this podcast when we talked about David's reluctance to raise his hand against Saul, that he wouldn't take any action against the Lord's anointed. So there are several, and anyone who is anointed is a Messiah, because that's what it means. It means the anointed one. So you have to kind of make it, draw a distinction in your mind between a Messiah with a, with a lowercase m and a Messiah with an uppercase m because Isaiah definitely talks about both. And in Hebrew, there weren't any uppercase letters, so we have to guess when he means one or the other. Now, sometimes when Isaiah talks about my servant, he's talking about this uppercase m Messiah. And sometimes when he talks about my servant, he's saying specifically to the entire nation of Israel, you are my servant because I need you. I need you to go out and spread the gospel. I need you to bless all the kindreds of the, of the earth. As he, as he promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, he said, through your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And God is saying in these chapters to Israel, you are my servant to do this. And then he also says, my servant will I raise up to do this, right? So it has two fulfillments. Difficult for the Jews to understand and, and wrap their heads around. And it can be difficult for us as well, but not as difficult because uh, we have people to explain it to us and we and we can get the idea that it has two fulfillments. It's not that hard. So here in chapter 45, describing Cyrus, and and God is saying, you know what Cyrus's power isn't a proof again it's not the proof of the gods of the Persians they're not any better than the gods of the Babylonians his power is proof of my power I raised him up because I needed him and I've and I've told you that I'm going to take you away into exile and I've also told you through I mean there it wasn't just it didn't begin with Isaiah it began with Hosea and Amos the other chapters the other uh, prophets who were prophesying during the time leading up to when the Assyrians conquered the Northern Kingdom, they were saying, you're going to be taken away and then you'll be gathered. I've been telling you this stuff for a long time. And I and I told you it so that you couldn't, when it happened, you couldn't say, oh, I already knew that. Because I was the first one to tell you. God is saying this to the Israelites. I was the first one to tell you. So Cyrus's power, the, the military might that he has, the political power that he has, it should... Appear to you as evidence of my power, my meaning God. I'm going to save you through Cyrus. And in this chapter, God also asks the Israelites to pose themselves the question: uh, Does the created being, does the creation know more than its creator? Can you, if you're the, cre- or if you're the child, can you say to your parents, what have you done? What kind of, how did you, why did you bear the child that you bore? No, you're the, you're the child. You can't say that. You don't you don't know more than your creator. And uh, in chapter forty six, God and Isaiah they continue with this this idea of the how foolish it is instead of a wooden idol, and this one it's a golden idol. But same thing, the goldsmith is going to take these the precious things from the people, and then he's going to make an idol, and then all of a sudden that idol is going to have power. No, it's going to sit there on the shelf. You're going to pray to it, and then it's going to say nothing to you because that's what idols do. Um, so more more sar- satire there, sarcasm, and uh, it's powerfully written. Ch- uh, chapter forty seven talks about the destruction of Babylon. So how wicked Babylon has become, and this is a wonderful type of pride. So if you want, again, if you want to apply the six antecedents of Isaiah in your life, and you want to understand what God is saying to you about your pride, then put yourself in the place of Babylon, and and read this chapter, and understand that in the temple, when you learn about the philosophies of men mingled with scripture, that's Babylon. When you hear about Jesus Christ, when you read about Christ, um, railing against the Jews and saying things like you will strain in a gnat and swallow a camel or a, a rich man would have, it would be easier for, a, for, uh, a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about Babylon as well. So these, the, this chapter and all of these chapters have several fulfillments, and uh, if you listen to our our special episode on the antecedents of Isaiah, you'll understand what they are. Okay, that brings us to chapter forty-eight and forty-nine. Now, uh, you may or may not remember these chapters were quoted extensively. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, completely in and they were lifted verbatim almost from the book of Isaiah and copied into the book of 1st Nephi. So these are chapters, they also appear as chapters 20 and 21 of 1st Nephi. Now, uh, it's so much more helpful to understand. You remember, at the end of 1st Nephi, chapter 19, Nephi explains why he's about to copy these chapters into the Book of Mormon. Because he says, I was trying to get my brethren to repent and to believe in Christ, so I I talked, I read to them from the books of Moses, but in order to get them to believe more fully in their Redeemer, then I read to them from Isaiah because I wanted to apply everything to us so that we could be for our profit and learning. And then right afterwards, so that's the end of chapter 19, right after that, we get chapter 20 and 21. And that's these chapters we're about to talk about, Isaiah 48 and 49. So what was the big deal? And this is, there were there were smaller quotations of Isaiah before these chapters, but this is the first time that, uh, unless I'm mistaken, but I think this is the first time that Nephi lifted whole chapters and put them right in the in the brass plate or in the plates of Nephi that he was carving, that he that he lifted entire chapters from Isaiah and extended passages and said we need to we need to understand this. Now, this goes firmly against the. The, the presence of these two chapters in the Book of Mormon goes firmly against the theory that there were two Isaiahs. Not 100% against the theory, and I'll explain what I mean, but the idea that there was one Isaiah who wrote chapters 1 through 38 or ch- 1 through 39, and then, and then it was either another prophet or a series of people who wrote the remaining chapters after the Jews were already in Babylonian captivity, and included them in the book of Isaiah, that that theory and the claim that the Book of Mormon was carried with Lehi's family when they left uh, Jerusalem in 600 AD, those two theories cannot both be true, right? It's either one or the other. Either these writings existed already in 600 BC when Lehi left Jerusalem, or they didn't. So... Um now the theory of 2 Isaiahs the, is not totally incompatible with these with the presence of these two chapters in the book of Mormon. And the reason I mention these two chapters specifically is later on in 2 Nephi what we call the Isaiah chapters um those come from the first part of Isaiah. So there's no real historical problem with them with their presence in the book of 2 Nephi. It's these later chapters of Isaiah that present a problem because uh, most scholars believe in the in the Isaiah theory which is that there are two Isaiah's writing um, the interesting thing that I thought of as I was reading these is that the is that Cyrus is never mentioned right the these chapters do fit very nicely in with the other chapters 40 through 49 uh, 48 and 49 fit very nicely nevertheless the name Cyrus is not put in there but it is possible that the the other chapters, in, or the, specifically the mentions of the name Cyrus, were included later without actually having a second author in the book of Isaiah. And uh, probably the most prominent LDS scholar, the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints scholar, who has written about the book of Isaiah is a man named Avraham Gileadi, and he is widely respected and he strongly opposes the idea of two or, or three Isaiahs and says that the book of Isaiah was written all by one person. Now, would uh, the original Isaiah, would he have uh, included references to Cyrus? Perhaps not. Perhaps he did and perhaps he didn't. But um, So if you ever come across this idea or somebody says, uh, you know, the the idea that the Nephites were able to take away all of the writings of Isaiah with them on these plates when they left in 600 has been disproven. It's not true. It is an idea and it is accepted by many scholars that these later chapters of Isaiah were written later. Um, however, Isaiah did. Here's another piece of evidence for the fact that Isaiah remained the same throughout um, almost all of his writings. He one of his early children, one of his children, and while he, um, let me say it this way, one of the children that he wrote about early in the book of Isaiah was named Sher Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. So it was a common theme throughout the book of Isaiah that there would be not only an exile, but a return from exile. So for Isaiah to project himself into the future and write as if he were living there would not be uh, beyond the pale, would not be something that would be that we couldn't even contemplate for him because it would have been very much in character, and uh, in fact, he even named one of his children, "A remnant shall return." So, uh, some interesting ideas there, and and something that is somewhat of a controversy among Isaiah scholars. So, here's what I want to end on, and that is why is it important that Nephi chose these two chapters. To me, it's a fan, uh, it's a fascinating fact that we have chapters 48 and 49 of Isaiah right here in the Book of Mormon, because I, Nephi expresses that he wants to convince his brethren that God is their redeemer. And then he takes these chapters that talk about returning from exile. For Joseph Smith to have done this and chosen this himself would have demonstrated such an advanced knowledge of not only the uh, the the surface meanings, but the underlining meanings and the themes and the context the historical context, some of which has only come to light uh in the last half century about what was going on in the book of Isaiah because uh Isaiah was using these verses with or these chapters that or i'm sorry Nephi was using these chapters where Isaiah was basically saying to the Israelites. Don't fear, even though you've been separated from where you think you should be, don't be afraid. God knows where you are. And again, I'm going to do something amazing that you haven't seen before. I'm going to do this quote-unquote new thing. I'm I'm going to do something so miraculous that though you've been talking about the Exodus for hundreds of years now, you won't even think to mention that anymore when you see how amazing this new thing I'm going to do is, which is I'm going to restore you. I'm going to take you back to the state you used to be in. So obviously, this, uh, this chapter 48 had a very clear surface interpretation, which was the Jews returning from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. But for Joseph Smith to see that Nephi would use it to comfort his brethren and say we're all going to be brought back that that was an amazing insight and it would have it would have meant that he had an understanding not only of the bible but of the the principles of storytelling that would it just boggles to me it boggles my mind it's I, i don't like to think about proofs of the book of mormon um because the book of mormon in my opinion cannot be proven it can't be proven that it was an ancient work it can only be demonstrated and then you still have a choice to make but to me this is such an amazing demonstration that nephi would have used this he didn't he didn't understand that the jews would be um using this verse to only mean one thing he would have understood that this verse meant israel throughout the generations and throughout the centuries or, i'm sorry this verse this chapter and then again uh In chapter 49, when when we have the context, when we read this from the context of Israel has been called by God to be God's servant in blessing all of the nations, then we can understand that when they're freed and led home, then this is also fulfilling it for the Nephites, and they're going to be the servants of all of the nations as well. They're part of this prophecy. Some of the messianic prophecies in Isaiah can be understood in more than one way. For example, uh, I mentioned a virgin shall conceive and bear a a son, which is a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7. Well, that word that's used for virgin can also be translated as a young woman who's the age where you would expect her to be a virgin. In other words, it's a young woman who's unmarried. So is it a prophecy of a miraculous birth or is it a pro- prophecy of a young man being born and then raising, uh, growing up to be a king? You could choose to take it either way. But here, and the reason I bring that up is um, because we will never have an interpretation of the scriptures where we don't have to choose to believe. Scholars can, by the time scholars are done talking about the origins of the scriptures, you realize that they could have come from just about anywhere. And if I want to believe that they came from prophets, then that's my choice. But it's never going to be proven. That's true even of the Bible, let alone the Book of Mormon, whose origins to most of the world are in doubt. However, there is a prophecy in chapter 49 where God says to the Israelites, I can't forget you. I can't forget about you. I'm not going to let you. This is such a wonderful prophecy. It's such a wonderful promise. I can't forget you because I've graven your name. I've written your name. I've inscribed it on the palms of my hands. And like I said before, how many nations can you name that were conquered by the Assyrians or the Babylonians that still exist? How many peoples from that time can you talk about as having a presence in the world today? None. So God, this promise, what a wonderful promise. And he's saying, I will be crucified for you. And my promise to you is that I can't forget about you. In other words, you can, you, just like me, you will never die. You are my servant forever. So that should be amazingly uh, comforting to us because as, as we talked about in the six antecedents, everything that's true of Israel is true of us. So God, when he says, I have inscribed you, I've, I've written your name or, uh, it, or I have engraven thee. It depends on which translation you read, but the idea is the same. I have imprinted you permanently on the palms of my hands. Therefore, I can never for, forget you. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you in exile. When you feel alone, when you feel as though uh, everything has gone terribly and God is, is actually has no power to accomplish his work, that's when you can understand that I needed to put you where you are to teach you, to purify you. And the promises that I made to you that you would be purified came from the same place as the promises that you will one day be restored to all of your blessings. So that's the good news of the gospel is behold your God. Your God reigns. Your God is in control of this world and he has power to save you and to heal you. So, I pray that uh, we'll all be able to understand better these wonderful and amazing promises in the book of Isaiah because, and especially these chapters 40 through 49, there are hardly, I don't believe it could be said that there are more powerful chapters in all of Scripture except perhaps the chapters we'll study next week. So uh, until then, remember that God has engraven us on the palms of his hands, that he loves us, that he will save us. That the fact that we might find ourselves in difficulty from time to time does not mean that he's not powerful. But the same reason that he needed to purify us is the reason that will drive him to bring us out of obscurity and out of darkness. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.